Welcome to the latest episode of Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in digital assets. I'm your host, Fadi Abualfa, Copper's Head of Research, and today our guests are Chain Argus CEO, Jonathan Ryder, and General Counsel, Patrick Tan. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, hi, Fadi. Um, thanks for having us. Guys, let's uh, kick off with you starting to tell us a little bit about what you do and your backgrounds as well. All right. Um, my name is Patrick Ten. I'm the general counsel for Chain Argos. Um, we are blockchain analytics uh, firm. We were the firm that was made famous for having um, uncovered that Binance had an undercollateralized stablecoin for about 1.4 billion US dollars. Um, we with a go-to analytics team that um, you you'll see through all of the major news media, um, and they you know that's the stuff stuff that makes the headlines and investigations. But our, our real business is actually pr- providing high-quality data to financial institutions, hedge funds, uh, and other companies and service providers within the ecosystem and for other kinds of uh, blockchain-type applications. With me, of course, is Jonathan. So, John Reiter. So, I was a uh, rates and FX options trader for a long time. Uh, So, I started looking at kind of derivatives-type quant work uh, in crypto, and we, we migrated to starting to look at kind of money flow and solvency questions and stuff like that to support trading around the time, honestly, that the Luna stuff blew up and it became clear that understanding if a protocol worked was just as important as understanding if the person you were trading against actually had any money. So these are both necessary requirements for a profitable trading strategy. Uh, So that stuff kind of migrated over time into supporting trading and investing, surveillance and solvency, whatever activities with data and analytics tools, as it became clear, we were rolling our own stuff and it was uncovering very quickly things that clearly should have been uncovered, you know, were people looking in the right ways. So we built a, a useful toolkit and then we we decided it was probably more useful to work business-wise on that kind of foundational technology. I mean, crypto's done a great job, you know, the chain analysis stuff going back, whatever, KYC for coins. So are these coins clean? That's fine. But more general questions like how many dollars went from here to here Nobody was looking at that stuff until six, eight, nine months ago when we started publicizing a lot of these things. So we're, um, we've ended up in that little corner of investing and trading, which is, uh, I guess, we're the first people starting that way. And now other people are starting to look. So there you go. So what is the most interesting thing that you guys have sort of discovered when you were looking at the stablecoin movements? Okay, so I think we were the first sort of in the group of, quote, skeptics, so people who don't believe that a lot of these protocols are being 100% honest with you, to say, no, I think the dollars are probably give or take all there. It's just a question of where they came from, where they're going, and what they're really doing. So, you know, there have been questions around Tether forever, right? And lots of people alleging that they don't have any money or that they're scammers, whatever, other people who think they're fantastic. Fine. Our attitude has been much more one of, We think we see plausible ways for this money to have gotten in, for this money to move around, for this money to come out, and a lot of people aren't really looking at stuff correctly. So we've been looking at a lot of minor stablecoins, you know, the smaller market cap ones that churn through money that nobody looked at until we started last year, Uh, and that now are all over the news. The true dollar is all over the news now, right? Paxos, BUSD, USDP have been all over the news. Uh, These were important things that we noticed were important I mean, like either attack vectors or routes for streaming money in, they have support vectors, whatever, important parts of the ecosystem that were underappreciated. And that, I think, is the most interesting thing we found. The whole architecture of the space, people had a little bit wrong. Um, you know, people think of Bitcoin and ETH as the, as the 
the key tokens and it, like Tether is just the lubricant. Actually, a lot of these really small stable coins turn out to be very, very important in ways that were not appreciated until recently. Um, that has implications for how you should do custody, stable cool design, exchange design, trading. You know, it, it sort of upends the whole perspective on, on, on the industry. So what type of clients are you guys helping out? Who's finding the information that you're providing through your data platform useful? And how are they using it and how, they, how are they utilizing this, whether for trading or other activities to identify sort of counterparty risks? Okay, so these are really all aimed at front office businessy type uh, activities. So some of them are trading, people developing trading signals. Some of them are supporting trading by doing risk and solvency analysis on counterparties. Right. So if you're a trading firm that builds automated techniques, signals, whatever, HFT type stuff, more data, more signal to help refine your models is always useful. And we have people who use it in that sense. Similarly, you've got people that are running much more simple, manual, maybe semi-passive type trading strategies, but they still need to be able to evaluate exchanges and other products that they use. So they would use us more for looking at solvency of something, monitoring flows for difficulty. We've got people in the earlier stage investing space. So you can consider, are the flows of this token consistent with like this just being a circle where the same five people are paying money to and from each other and it's not a project I should invest in the Series B of? Or does this look like organic on-chain sort of flow type activity and it's okay to do a follow-on investment of whatever, something like that. Uh, we even got people who are using it in, in insolvency type investigations. So, I mean, now what Celsius and BlockFi are the two best known blown up uh, borrowing and lending platforms and they're people who are even publishing their own research using our platform on flows of funds through those through those, uh, those platforms and others um, starting to look to try to find where the money went. Right, so we've got people at the front end of trading actively, high-frequency hedge fund types, all the way through to VCPE type investing and people who are trying to consider at what price they should buy claims of insolvent companies in bankruptcy. That's the full stack, full stack. We recently had two guests on our podcast from Stylus Capital, and they were arguing that they don't even look at anything on chain. They don't. They think it's noise. What would you respond to that? Is there something that stands out that can give a strong signal as to what will happen? Okay, so I think it's important to slice up. There are certainly on-chain measures that appear to be completely meaningless. So as is very well documented, sort of monthly active wallets for a lot of tokens and projects is meaningless because you can see people moving, they take 100 tokens, they break it into five batches of 20, and then they move them among webs of things to, to push up those numbers. You can see that's happening. Twitter is filled with allegations of this all over the place. So yeah, absolutely. Anybody that says our number of active whatever wallets, borrowers, and lenders of our token, that kind of stuff, is, is going up organically, that's probably useless most of the time because you know, we know that those numbers are made up. You've even got major projects, you know, there are allegations that FTX and Alameda were just doing wash trading of USDC to make it look busier, right? Similarly, the Gemini dollar, right? So there's lots of stuff where the on-chain does look like, like a Fugazi. There's nothing real economic happening. At the same time, if you see a lot of collateral coming into a box, you know, so borrowing lending protocol, whatever, and a lot of dollars being lent out of it, you can see that sort of asset liability mismatch building up. Right? So we're not claiming all of the on-chain activity is valid. We're claiming if you have a given system and it's accumulating a lot of ETH and Bitcoin, 
and lending out a lot of dollars, well, you now know this thing is at risk if there's a price drop. And that's real. So you can see leverage in that sense. Similarly, while number of active wallets may not be meaningful, minting and burning of DAI is a wonderful indicator for like generic demand for leverage in the system. Right? So if people are minting more DAI, they want more leverage. People paying back all of their DAI loans, uh, returning their whatever DAI, that's a, that's a decrease in leverage. That's real. That's economically meaningful. Whereas six wallets moving a bunch of tokens in a circle doesn't generate anything but volume. Right? Also, you can certainly see in the case of the uh, Binance, Binance dollar and whatever, Binance pegged tokens being under collateralized, there are situations where the market believes the circulating supply or the market cap of a token is one number and the real answer is different. Right? So approximately what happened with the Binance dollar is Binance was pretending there were an extra couple billion dollars in backing. They had too many tokens issued. And you know that difference is going to get marked out at some point. Catalyst and trading are separate conversations, but there's real information there. Right? Similarly, uh, with FTT, the FTX collapse, you could see gigantic on-chain movements of FTT among wallets affiliated with the exchange, and that absolutely meant something was happening. It turns out what was happening is they were borrowing all the client assets, right? Uh, but th th that's meaningful. The number of transfers might not have mattered, but the fact that they transferred 173 million tokens, and that wildly exceeded the amount of transfers that had happened on any day ever, and that was in a single transaction, that's meaningful, right? Since it's different stuff than you would look for in traditional finance, right? equity market volumes of a stock mean something. On-chain volumes of a token in general do not. So I agree with them completely on that. Uh, but there's new stuff you can see here and, and new things that you can find. There, there is signal. Uh, it's just, it is different. It is different. What, what would you say are the top five metrics that people should look at when considering on-chain data? And there's a lot of data platforms right now. And a lot of the metrics are very similar across these d different data platforms. What would you say are the top five metrics that you would look at? And what are you guys doing that's a little bit different? Now, I've seen some of your work and I know, I know some of the things that you guys have um, been able to uncover, but I'd like you to sort of discuss that too. Okay, sure. So uh, let me give you an example of a measure that applies to, to stable coins that no one really has historically looked at. So you want to look at the amount of minting and the amount of burning versus the market cap, right? So if you have a stable coin that has $100 million in market cap, give or take, for a long period of time, but $10 billion of minting and burning, you have to ask yourself what that's being used for, right? Because that does not look the same as a stable coin that has $50 billion of minting $30 billion of burning and a $20 billion market cap. That looks like something people put money in and mostly use. Whereas the other thing looks like a conduit for moving money from one place to another. So there are ratios you can calculate in that sort of space to start to do that kind of analytics. Um, that doesn't necessarily apply to things that aren't backed by off-chain real-world assets, but no one looked at that stuff historically. And you see Tether and USDC, you know, mostly the money sits in there. Right. I mean, Circle, the market cap has been dropping lately, but they have, you know, tens of billions of dollars in there and they haven't had hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars pushed through the thing. Right? Mostly money goes in, kind of stays, comes out eventually. Whereas a lot of the smaller stable coins, some of the Paxos products, the Huobi dollar, 
uh, the true dollar, you see wildly more money going through than actually sitting there. So those ratios mean something that's different. Something else that people should look at but don't, and this applies to all tokens, right? when there is a, a bridge or a wrapping procedure of some sort, people need to actually check that the amount on both sides are the same. Now, when there was a bridge hack or bridge suspected hack or bridge weirdness just this morning, that's a software bridge. So in those cases, it's fairly easy to see there's 100 tokens here or there are 100 tokens there. And people do watch that stuff. But exchanges bridge tokens, right? Binance bridges tokens, Huobi bridges tokens, OKX bridges tokens, all these guys bridge tokens. People don't monitor that. Right? So whether the tokens on the exchange network, so they've all got their own blockchain and generally the exchange does the bridging to those chains. People don't monitor that that stuff is backed properly and don't really appreciate the risk they're associated with by dealing on those on those platforms. Um, this isn't an allegation that somebody controls those chains. It's that they control the tokens themselves. Right? So if you're trading Huobi wrapped tokens on Huobi's chain, you should at least, you clearly trust Huobi, whatever, that's fine. But you should also be sure Huobi has enough funds backing these tokens in some way. And nobody checks that those market caps line up. So there you have a number where the ratio should just be one. Binance now has a page that displays this kind of stuff. Or any number below one is, is, a, is, a, red, is a red alert, right? It's a, it's a serious problem. People don't really track that stuff. A lot of the on-chain metrics, you know, the Bitcoin and ETH you alluded to, you know, people talk about that sort of net, uh, the proof of stake, net burning or minting of ETH through uh, validation cycles and whatnot. That stuff is pretty heavily covered, I think. Um, people don't, do as good a job looking at native token versus the wrapped version of the native token. So there are wrapped Bitcoin on the Tron network that don't appear connected to the Bitcoin network in any way, and yet people still trade them, right? So this isn't a metric like, you know, realized market cap or whatever people talk about for, for Bitcoin. It's more of a questions that should be asked. Where is the backing for this? Why can't I calculate this thing for myself? Uh, that, that, that is, I think that's kind of an answer to your question, where it's, it's a signal that people should look at. Is there a procedure provided for how I can check this for myself? Whether there is a procedure or not is an independent question of whether or not you've done the checking and it checks. And people just don't do that in ways that really astonish me. I, I, it's odd. Um, now, when you've got more major protocol type tokens, so uh, maker uh, Venus Protocol, Sushi Swap, this kind of stuff. We're learning now that concentration of holdings of governance tokens and whatnot tends to cause a lot of trouble. And people don't look enough at if this protocol is completely controlled by four wallets and there's a price collapse, they're probably going to freeze it and monkey around a bit. And we've now seen that happen dozens of times. And still nobody's monitoring Gini coefficient type stuff for these governance tokens. They just all believe that the team will take care of it properly. That slapped us in the face now so many times that willful blindness is just inexcusable. Right? And I really don't think people I, call that out enough. I agree. One of my favorite projects is actually Liquity. And they, they've they designed a very nice stable coin with no governance token. It's already It's already out there. They can't mess around with the protocol. No one can vote on anything. Uh, the design system seems to be working almost flawlessly. Um, I think that's an in, one of the more interesting stablecoin models that actually is proving to work and seems to be a bit less risky. Have you tracked that at all? 
Yeah, so, yeah, I'm familiar with that one. I mean, they're they're smaller, and that's a yeah. sort of standard over collateralized without a without a um, governance process. To me, that works in the same way and for the same reasons that Uniswap works. Uniswap does technically have a governance process, but it actually doesn't really do anything. The whole point is it just sits there, and it you know they uh, th- those those things do seem to work better because, as you allude to, every time such a product has a governance token and some kind of master keys it ends up collapsing and those people turn those master keys. I agree that the governance-free model, immutable Uniswap V2 is still kicking with no trouble, right? And that thing has been battle-tested for a long time. Whether you think it's a good idea from a trading perspective is a different conversation. The tech does seem to work, yeah. And people don't, you know, if you were scoring how diffuse your governance process is, the highest possible score is liquidity where there is no procedure for governance, right? That's the best version of this. Um, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I guess we could, we have not looked at minting and burning of that as a generic leverage demand signal like DAI, but it wouldn't be that hard for us to do so. And I suspect that, that would work. So consider us inspired. It, it's c- certainly an interesting product. The There is a consideration. They do have a, a 0.5% minting fee. So the consideration is you want to hold your ETH for a long time. And if you want to borrow and leverage and what not. Um, but I want to side sidestep a little bit and and I think you'll see my thought process on the following question. What are you guys seeing geographically? How are we seeing are we seeing things shift back into sort of the Asian markets? Are we seeing bigger demand in Europe? Are we seeing something happening in the US after a lot of these ETF announcements? Geographically speaking, what are we seeing and do you have any sort of thoughts on the distribution of, let's say, Bitcoin, for example? Okay. So I think the biggest geographic shift now is not so much East versus West as onshore versus offshore. So whether that offshore is Hong Kong, Singapore, sort of semi-offshore, the Seychelles, Dubai, or the Caribbean, right? we're seeing that a lot more of the action is moving to those areas. So I actually think it's going to be more and more difficult going forward to tell the source geography of a lot of the owners. So famously, if you look at holdings of U.S. treasuries that the government produces every so often, there are massive holdings in you know the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, the UAE, places that the population is tiny, exception of UAE, whatever, official foreign reserves. It's clearly not people that have $200 billion of this stuff living in the Cayman Islands. It's funds. So we're going to start to see the same problem here where many of the businesses associated with these things are in a handful of offshore jurisdictions, Switzerland, whatever, and you don't know really anymore. I can say that the feverish pace of events in Singapore from two years ago is not the same now. right? So the retail kind of demand there has definitely cooled off. But it's going to be harder and harder to tell where people are beyond tracking kind of events and advertising such as is allowed in the same way that we don't really know the source geography of all the holders of all the assets that are custodied in the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, right? I, I, I'm, my opinion in that space is confidence is lower and lower than it used to be. I don't really know. Um, I mean, the, there's been a push to use stuff in Latin America, but we don't really have a way to tell because the products are all offshore whatever products i i struggle to give you a convincing answer for that sorry actually the answer the answer is really good to be honest with you because it leads me to 
the the next consideration and the question that I've got is about the approval of a Bitcoin ETF in the US. Now, actually, my very first research piece for Copper was why it's so difficult to build a structured product. And it was it was very clear back then that the SEC continued to say that unless there's a share surveillance sharing agreement of significant size with a market of significant size, we're not going to approve this. Now, they've dropped these um, words into the latest filings and they've named Coinbase as the trading counterparty here with the service uh, surveillance agreement. However, what I've been noticing is that US exchanges, they have a small share of the overall market and they have combined at this point less Bitcoin uh, reserves than Binance. And so what's the consideration there? What is what is a market of significant size in that scenario? Is it the reserves or is it the volumes? Okay, so I think at least the reserves, we can take people at their word or we can see on chain what the balances are, right? So you know, if you've got 500,000 Bitcoin on your exchange, whether you owe your customers 600,000 or 500,000 doesn't affect the fact that you have 500,000 in your, in, your, in your wallet, fine. So those numbers are you know, probably reliable overall. I don't think anyone trusts the volumes anywhere. <laughs> I don't think the SEC has a, a better window into that one either. Right? So if a US exchange said, oh, okay, the volume target is 8%, all right, we'll get 8% volume. Right? You can see that happening in this space. So I think that's part of why they're being a little bit you know, murky in some of those responses. They need to get a reasonable amount of assets a place they can see them and be confident that a reasonable amount of the volume is occurring a place they can see it. And as the major exchanges in the U.S. are talking about or actively retreating offshore, it's hard to see how you're going to square that one in the near term. I mean, there was uh, Bact, which is a wholesale custody sort of provider, ICE affiliated, you can trade deliverable futures, it was all fine. That didn't go anywhere. I mean, that clearly, if that had filled up with a whole bunch of volume and a whole bunch of Bitcoin, then that would have satisfied everybody. I think we can all agree that if ICE futures were huge and deliverable ICE-affiliated warehouse was huge, fine. Somebody's going to have to build something like that that works before they're going to be happy, one imagines. Um, I mean, Grayscale stuff is custodied at Coinbase, and their asset size is quite large, right? So that makes it clear that having wallet balances that are sufficient is not enough. I mean, Grayscale is basically the largest holder of, of, of Bitcoin, right? So, you know, individual whatever chunk of stuff that's, that's holding. It's, and that's not enough to do it, right? So yeah, more volume that's credibly with inside their perimeter is going to be needed. Coinbase, Gemini, and Kraken just don't do enough business. And it's not the government's responsibility to fix that problem. That's certainly their attitude. Right? Uh, and I don't see how people are going to square that. How... how how trustworthy is, I mean, you just said that you don't trust any of the exchange volumes. How do you consider what's liquid, which exchange is liquid enough and uh, and viable to trade at if all the volumes might be spoofed? Are there, are there any, um, is there? I think, yeah. go ahead. No, I think, I think we'd be hesitant to answer questions like that. I mean, just simply because all, all, all we're saying, we're not saying that all the volumes yeah. From the exchanges are faked. All we're saying is that short of an independent auditor who is, you know, who's auditing these volumes, like now just to, to 
I mean, by everybody's way, always questioned all of these volumes. Correct. Right? So, by, and that's by, hardly a new position. By way of comparison, nobody goes and looks at the NYSE and says, oh, yeah, okay, all of this, I mean, how much of this volume is real and how much of it is wash trading? And we know that, that you know, regular financial institutions, TradFi exchanges, regular stock exchanges, things like wash trading and stuff like that, spoofing, all of these market manipulative activities are policed you know, religiously. Now, and there's still problems. And there's still, pro- and, yeah, there's and there's despite still problems. that, there's still problems. So all we're saying is that you know when it comes to exchanges and their self-reported data, if you're using this data for back tests or for your strategy usage or whatever, or, or if, if you're using this for any kind of data point which sort of pertains to the liquidity that's available for a particular uh, crypto asset or what have you, then you are assuming that the exchange itself, first of all, is is reporting this data with a high degree of fidelity and integrity. Second of all, it's that they are able to police this behavior because quite, and I'm, I'm sure as must be the case, even if the exchange is not perpetrating this sort of behavior or if it's, or through its affiliates, how is how is anybody to know that the, the actors on the exchange um, are, are not doing so? I, I think it's, it's important to say that First of all, it's a difficult problem to solve. Yeah. And we know that existing exchanges that trade commodities, uh, stocks, and, and the rest of it, they spend a huge amount of money and resources to sort of ferret out this sort of uh, bad behavior. And I would say that comparing that against the, the setups that, that we're dealing with, it's, not an, it's an apples to oranges comparison. It's not fair because... Clearly, these 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 um exchanges are, are neither resourced, uh, nor nor probably in many cases do they have the the expertise and experience to to, to or the personnel for that matter to 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 sort of ferret out these things. So so it's a because it's a difficult problem. Um, and because I don't believe that the infrastructure, uh, that we currently have in place is sufficient to to adequately address this problem. Um, all we can say is that in general act with caution you know i mean that that's all but not to say that oh okay you know i think this exchange is great you know they've got good volumes uh you know i i don't think it's that's a a fair assessment i think the first question before you even get to that that question would be that you know we lost it yeah do do we want to are we able to get our money off the exchange i think that's probably more a fundamental kind of um and, and i think we see that changing now right because a lot of people are looking at custodians um, and, and, and I think um, I, you guys have a, a clear loop product, which I think in the early days before a lot of this mess, uh, p- uh, a lot of exchanges were hesitant to offer, but now it looks as if uh, that, that's sort of taking off. Oh, okay. And I would also, I would distinguish between the question of tradable liquidity from a trading perspective and the government accepting that there's a reasonable amount of liquidity and volume on an exchange. So as a trader... I can see the order book. I can see historical order book. I can have what my experience has been trading there. You know, you can analyze. Look, if, if the orders are real, <laughs> there's liquidity. If they're all from an exchange affiliated market maker, the volume that comes out of it may not be so real. But there's that much on the bid side, and so it's okay for me as a trader if I believe that I can get my money off the exchange, whatever the procedure, that the, the assets are actually there. Then I can have price impact liquidity. That's that's fine. But no government agency is going to believe the volumes on an exchange that admits that some of their top customers are owned by exchange management. That's a non-starter from a regulatory perspective. Even if as a trader, 
look, I only care that I can sell 2 million at whatever 46 instead of 42. Great, whatever, moving on, as long as you really have the money. Um, the difference between those two questions, I think, is why a lot of people don't understand why the SEC keeps being angry about this Bitcoin ETF stuff. And actually, within a traditional finance context, it makes perfect sense because you would never accept the volume numbers of an exchange subsidiary trading on that exchange. That's just that's just not the way people analyze these things. Um, but if you're a trader that's perfectly happy using a VPN to access some offshore exchange whose address you don't even know, clearly those are not problems for you. You're asking different questions. Squaring that circle is, is, is challenging here. And it's funny, actually, for me to watch a lot of retail investors getting hit in the face with the way offshore finance works and just not, you know, those two things don't normally mix. And it's, it can be confusing and challenging for people. Do you think that uh, the Uniswap model could be a potential solution to all of this, the whole on-chain volumes? Okay, so there are certainly, there are capital efficiency issues with automated market makers that we can talk about separately. But we, we've done a fair amount of work on price feed, volume feed type stuff coming out of AMMs. Yeah, look, those trades are real. Those assets are real. You're not going to get defaulted on when you try to pull the money off because it settles in real time. It is a, from a derivative trader perspective, you look at the way an AMM works and think, this is brain dead. I don't see how this can actually be useful from a price discovery perspective because the capital efficiency is terrible and relying on arbitrage means that the stakers are always going to lose money over time. But from a credit risk perspective, this is the greatest product ever invented because I can quote anything I want anywhere at any time and there's zero credit risk. Right? And that's a weird pairing of properties. Uh, I mean, there's no constant function that can correctly predict the future. So clearly, if you rely on arbitrage, the people who've put the assets in are going to slowly get picked off over time as people arb against whatever other facilities exist. But nobody's getting defaulted on, right? So like you have a guarantee of losses, but no possibility of credit losses. That is a different type of product than traditional finance offers. And I guess, I mean, just to add to that, like whatever you, and alluding to the earlier point about um, exchange reported volumes and exchange report prices, whatever you have to think about that, you don't have that same, I mean, you don't have that same, you don't ask that same quality of questions when it comes to decentralized exchanges, for instance, like Uniswap, simply because even though um, it, it is, widely know that there is some degree of wash trading, there's some degree of market manipulation. The fact of the matter is that these people are still paying gas fees. So one of the so if we can all accept that on the baseline, what is the base truth, we can accept and acknowledge that these transactions took place. Regardless of whether or not they were intended to be manipulative, we know that they took place. And at least if we can all agree on one version of the truth, then we can start to have a conversation about price. And at least when it comes to, I mean, if but we're not at that stage yet where the, the decentralized exchanges actually are a major determinant of price. They seem to be more price taker as opposed to price maker in terms of setting what's the benchmark for a lot of these uh, cryptocurrencies. I mean, worse than that, they're, they're, they're victims of arbitrage. Correct. Right? So the prices are slapped in line by people arbing against them off the exchanges and constantly picking off money from the LPs. Yeah. So, so until such time, it's going to be difficult. But at least, like, let's say, for instance, if you wanted to set up a... Uh, I don't know, an options product or something like that. And you say that, you know, we'd be okay to use a Uniswap USDC slash Ether price feed. At least we all know what we're talking about when we say that. When we say that we want to take that price off of an exchange, I don't know that necessarily we all have that same version of or interpretation of what the truth is. 
So, but we're not at that stage yet where I think the decentralized markets have reached. And, and also bear in mind that, you know, in order to interact with um, any of these uh, AMMs, you have to have a certain level of sophistication, which I believe the average retail crypto player is, is just simply not equipped to handle right now. And as a result, that's why decentralized exchanges still have a dominant role because they're easy to use. Yeah, I agree. It's There is complications there. It's not the easiest thing to wrap your head around, especially with version three now bringing in the concentrated liquidity yeah. uh, side of things. Um, where do you think these AMMs are capital inefficient? Are limited order books better? And I believe Injective, also our last podcast, um, is actually building a limit order book on the blockchain because they f- they feel that that's more relatable to traditional finance. Is that the best model we have? Is the AMM model flawed? I know that A16Z is talking about a different type of model around AMMs called loss versus rebalancing. What are your thoughts on the whole capital efficiency thing? Okay, so I guess loss versus rebalancing is a question about what what your invariant or whether the the, the AMM is going to do some sort of internal hedging type stuff. So we'll put a pin in that one and, and come back to it. The, the capital efficiency question. So let's just think very simply about the way uh, Uniswap V2 XY equals K market maker works. So you have to stick two piles of tokens in there to be able to start. And those tokens have to be locked. They can't go anywhere else because if they're at risk, all of a sudden there could be losses in this thing. So the only way I can be completely sure, zero credit risk, trading with this is if they're they're locked on chain in those wallets. They can't be lent out to a protocol to earn yield or anything like that. Then there's risk and it's a much more complicated conversation. Well, let's say one of those tokens is supposed to represent a dollar and the dollar deposit rate is currently 5%. All of a sudden, you have a 500 basis point drag <laughs> to deposit into this protocol. Even if the other token is some totally non-yielding crypto, whatever, or it represents gold or something, you've already got a 500 basis point drag that you have to to get over for people to be willing to deposit assets there. When rates were pretty close to zero, these things didn't have much trouble. And then as interest rates have been going up all over the world, you've seen all the money come out because nobody wants to leave it there. I mean, Uniswap was having difficulty, LPs breaking even, net of hedging costs, before the underlying tokens earned meaningful yields two years ago. It really seems like the volume that has to go through those things now is incredibly high for people to be able to to earn back the cost of the foregone interest for locking the assets up. Uh, You can, so there's been a fair amount of work done, Orbit Markets has published a few things on this, static hedging for LP payoffs. So if it's a constant function, there's some kind of function and you can reproduce that function with option prices, whatever. And staking net of some kind of option hedge, you're just taking a position on volumes through the automated market maker. Will the fees be enough to make up the hedge cost and the interest cost? And the higher the interest costs get, we're not going back to 0% deposit rates for a long time, if ever, right? Maybe lower, but not zero again. Yeah, that's a real challenge for these things. Uh, The way V3 works, the amount of assets you're locking up, you know, concentrated liquidity changes the nature of the locking. So it depends on precisely what payoff formula you've, you've assumed. But yeah, you still have some locking up and some difficulty on, uh, you know, on, on earning the interest for those things. If you're locking one-sided liquidity and it's a token that doesn't pay any yield, okay. Uh, but the big bay use case for a lot of proof-of-stake native token now is to earn the yield from the staking process. So if your ETH is locked up 
in a Uniswap vault, you're not earning your staking yield. And if the ETH in the Uniswap vault is then staked, it's at risk and you have credit risk trading with the thing. So you kind of have to make a choice one way or another here. And we're seeing that demand to supply liquidity at current volumes is not high enough, presumably, because they're just not earning enough money back. Right? And lowering dollar interest rates is a solution that's not available to this industry. So they're going to have to no, find it's a not, way yeah. to get there. Right? Yeah. The, I mean, you're not beating 5% coupons out of the central bank. Uh, crypto's yeah. not going to do that anytime soon. Yeah. And that challenges the very model of the AMM. Um, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of the stable swaps, what do you think is going on there? The fees are incredibly low at 0.01%. Who's doing this? Who's trading this and why? Well, and does so, it work? Okay, you mean uh, Curve, sort of, and stuff, stuff similar to Curve, right? Or, stuff similar to Curve. Any, any USD stablecoin pairing? Okay, so I think you have two different dynamics here. So one version of stablecoin pairing is people who put USDC into Maker to get DAI back out, right? And that is pretty clearly an attempt to remove the freezeability controls of the USDC because there's really no other rational reason to, to do that. Fine. So that, that is what it is. Things like Curve, you know, uh, constant function market makers where the function is designed to support tiny fees and prices that stay really, really close to the peg all the time. Look, this is an attempt to suppress volatility so that the price is supposed to be one and we're going to keep the price as close to one for as long as we can. And then we're pushing all of the volatility that exists in the world all the way out into the wings. You saw this with UST, where the price was basically one right up until the moment that it was not, because you're not giving people price feedback. The reason nobody trades stablecoins against stablecoins on Uniswap is that the prices move around too much and the fees are too high. People use Curve because the price is stable, but that means if there's a genuine imbalance, that price signal is suppressed until you realize it all at once. Right. Curve is a much flatter in the middle and steeper in the edges, sort of a constant function. That's a valid choice, right? People can do that. And as long as everyone believes these things are really going to stay back at one, enjoy yourselves. The risk is that you get catastrophically wrecked if and when that turns out to be false. Whereas in Uniswap and other, you know, X, Y equals K, simple type, type things, you can at least see the volatility. The market is telling you something when the price moves and pretending that's not real is... Sometimes a good idea, but sometimes a very, very bad idea. And so you believe the so curve curve is a little bit different in terms of how it how the prices move along that curve to the concentrated liquidity version on Uniswap three. So the 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 the, the curve touches the axis, so the reserves can go to zero at that specified range. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is that that's effectively suppressing price information. I mean, if you look at the three pool and you've got a situation where the assets are 20%, 20%, 60%, and it's still basically all trading at par, consider where Uniswap would put those prices, right? <laughs> There's a huge gap in price signal there. It's not right or wrong. I mean, those are both valid distributions. So there's some probability distribution of tomorrow's price of a, of a stablecoin pairing, right? So USDT, USDC tomorrow will probably be one. It's almost certainly not going to be uh, five or 0.2, right? But there's some probability distribution of where those numbers where those numbers work out. Curve puts a different payoff function against that probability distribution than does Uniswap. 
Those are both valid trades, right? But people need to understand that the feedback you're getting in Uniswap that you don't like maybe is valid feedback. <laughs> when the curve pools are that imbalanced, I think more people should look at them and say, hmm, Uniswap would put this price at, at four, not at 1.0002. Am I really sure that's not the right answer? Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it's the right answer, but you know there is, there is signal there. And it's consciously suppressing that signal in the belief that everything will get rebalanced and go back to zero. It's an incentive mechanism. Incentive mechanisms work until they don't. And they usually fail pretty hard and pretty fast. You see this in currency trading all the time where emerging market currency that they keep hiking rates on to avoid a devaluation eventually realizes all the devaluation at once. And that's exactly how you're seeing stablecoins fail. And Curve is just the Argentine Central Bank in 2001 holding rates at 80% to avoid having to devalue the peso. And eventually when they run out of money, UST goes to zero right? all, all at once. I want us to stay on the topic of stablecoins and venture into the potential of a central bank digital currency. Yeah. Now, what are the challenges for these central banks, in your opinion, and what are the dangers when someone decides to start wrapping these central bank digital currencies? Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. So, I think you found the problem immediately right there. Yeah. So I mean, governments decided quite a while ago that unlimited permissionless transfers of money were just not permitted. I mean, people talk about numbered Swiss bank accounts. All that stuff was banned before World War II. Right? Bearer shares are not really a thing. This stuff has just not been allowed for a very long time for a wide variety of reasons. We're not expressing any opinion on whether that's right or wrong. We're acknowledging that it's true and that it's not going to get changed. There is no chance that people are, that any government is going to provide massive value transfer allow people to wrap it, move it around totally permissionlessly in a way that can never be stopped. And they're just going to sit there and say, oh, well, yeah, you managed to get around our rules. Congratulations. Enjoy yourself. Right. There is no chance that's the outcome here. And the more people try to push for that, the more likely they are to have the entire thing taken away from them, frankly. Uh, it's that all that USDC sits inside die and the government hasn't done anything about it yet is astonishing to us because it, it can be done with one email and People just seem to think that's not going to happen and a bad enough actor will get involved. If the government's actually running the thing, yeah, then they're directly responsible and they can't point the finger at anybody else. So they'll be much quicker to block stuff. I, I don't see why people think a government-operated blockchain stablecoin would be so much more free of KYC AML than bank transfers because, of course, why would they give up that power if they have that power? I'm not saying they're right or wrong. Come on. I don't, I don't yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not for one, like a lot of people think that a CBDC would look something like any of the privately issued stable coins that we see on the market now. They won't even look remotely like that. Yeah. They, they, they're, it, it's just a blockchain flavored banking system type. And, and, and not only that, you haven't actually fully, um, you know, when you issue a CBDC, that's a direct liability of the central bank as opposed to where our current financial system is based off of uh, commercial banks. So, you know, I can't imagine a logical, reasonable, rational government eradicating its commercial banking system by making this a direct liability of their central bank. In fact, what's more likely the case, um, as we've seen through these limited rollouts and these pilot projects, 
is that the commercial banks will still be very much involved. It's just a different form of your current bank deposits. Mm. And that's all it is. Um, and again, I think it's important to contextualize this whole issue of CBDCs and stuff like that in the sense that outside of the US, um, you know, the idea that you can send money instantly is, it's, it sounds like make-believe. It sounds like fantasy. You know what I mean? Because in the US, that's just not a thing. You, you, you can't, you know, um, you know, that's why, why all these services that have popped up work so well. But outside of the US, you know, there are plenty of places um, where you can do instant transfers of money, you know, within the country itself. Yeah. There's no cash app outside the United States because almost every other developed country and lots of developing countries just have at least retail size real-time payment systems that work fine based on your phone number or something and have for a long time. There is no private product. There is no need. Um, some of them don't work for foreign currency, but whatever. When we look at this CBDC stuff, what we're really talking about, and I think if you want to, you know, really examine what's the sort of raison d'etre, if I, not to murder my French, but for this thing would really be to kind of look at cross-border flows. So like things like trade finance to speed up trade finance. And clearly this is going to be done by heavily regulated, institutionalized counterparties. Um, you know, even if you want to do things like internal settlement, you could use, I can foresee that that could be a, a logical reason why you'd have a CBDC to do, you know, settlements, you know, in between banks and stuff like that. And that again, that's not something that doesn't exist in a form or a shape already in the financial system. And these are all use cases within a whitelisted walled garden perimeter within the financial system where you're saying tokenization as a software engineering tool is more efficient than the current way that we maintain multiple databases and reconcile across them. That, that can be true or not and is completely independent a question from whether or not public blockchain government currency will be a thing in large amounts. So it may be perfectly fine for a collection of whitelisted financial institutions to trade a government-issued stablecoin on a public chain as a more efficient way of moving money across borders, whatever. But among people who are whitelisted and they, they KYC, AML, size limit restrictions all apply, I can see that happening. I mean, maybe it's better software-wise, maybe it's not. That's a, that's a software engineering question we have to go suss out. But economically, the system not going to be any different than it is right now because why would it be? From from what I've understood, these organizations like the BIS, the FSB, they're all trying to fit the CBDC structure under the foreign exchange markets, mainly because there's nine trillion of daily counterparty risk because of the time zones, because of the settlement times. And so trying to minimize that by central bank money rather than commercial bank money risk. So that's yep. pr the primary reason that they've established would be a very good use case for something like this. Yeah, so I, I was an FX trader for, for a long time. I mean, it, there is, there was historically a lot of interbank credit risk in the spot foreign exchange markets. A famous German bank explosion in the 1970s caused a lot of trouble. Uh, so the, the whole system migrated to a uh, thing called the CLS, Continually Linked Settlements. So they built up infrastructure to settle uh, net amounts all at the same time, both ways, usually in the UK, usually through one of a handful of very large banks like Citibank in the UK um, that would do these settlements to mitigate those credit risk problems. I can certainly see how 
more governments, more financial systems, more central banks would have a go at this approach. I mean, the CLS approach wasn't terribly clever. It was just to force everybody to onboard with one or two money center banks in London and do all their net settlements there. That's a bit of a blunt instrument, but it does work. This is more clever than that and may well be better. What you're talking about there is purely software engineering for alleviating credit risk that exists because of software mismatch type of problems in the foreign exchange market. The end user will never know if there's a difference. And this is something I like to point out to a lot of people. If your bank switches from MySQL to Oracle or whatever it is, you never get notified and neither does the government. Changing the underlying software settlement technology has nothing to do with the end user experience. It may allow you to add certain features in some, some cases, but it also might not. Yes, I I suspect that we're going to see more attempts at software in that space and that end users are not going to find that this just frees them up. I mean, the one truly novel use case that stablecoins have allowed is giving things that look like dollar bank accounts to people in countries where that's not legal, possible, easy, whatever. Even if you think about the most government-friendly type case, providing support to oppressed people, whatever, political opponents that are supported by a different government. You know, the U.S. government supports dissidents in some countries and not others, the French government, whatever. Yeah, the government doesn't want to be overtly doing that itself anyway. <laughs> so providing CBDC to the political opposition in an opponent country, yeah, I don't think that one's going to happen. That's a little bit too on the nose, right? You'd love to have some company in between and say, oh, yeah, that's the, you know, that's them. Um, forgetting the fact that the government would then also be directly facilitating bad cross-border movements of capital, which they definitely do not want to be held responsible for. Also, sorry, just one last CBDC bit. When people make all these examples, uh, oh, you know, this purchase has been disallowed because you bought too much of, how do people think Visa works, right? There's a merchant code. You could implement that now. You can't use your card at places with excessive chargebacks. Visa kicks them off. If you think that's some horrid dystopia, I'm sorry to let you know you're already living there. A lot of Wirecard's business was about miscoding merchants to get around precisely those restrictions. <sighs> that didn't end very well. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of people are complaining about stuff they don't realize has already been done to them. This is not a pro-excessive government power argument. It's a no, statement about the world. There's a lack of uh, understanding of our position in the world and... It's very pessimistic of a lot of people in crypto to think that we're in this dystopian financial system, even though the world is infinitely better than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And the consideration that the only answer to this is Bitcoin is is a little bit much, in my opinion, at least. One of the things that I'd like to ask you is, We've really given uh, crypto a, a bit of a hammering today. So let's, let's end this podcast on a good note. What are your favorite projects that you're seeing? And what's the next step for the ecosystem and the industry? I, a lot of people, I mean, okay, we, we appear on shows like Crypto Critics Corner and stuff like that. A lot of people think that we're anti-crypto. You know, we, 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 we're not. We're interested in seeking the truth. Um, it, it does nobody any favors to pretend that that this is some kind of silver bullet to either solve problems that don't exist or to solve problems that can be solved. 
So or, I, or that have always existed. And, and that have always existed and can be solved. And this and even if they could be solved, this is not the correct tool. So so I just want to be be um, careful in, in 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 giving that impression that we're, we're not you know this, and I, I don't think you know uh, we would characterize any of the things that we said uh, today as necessarily um, hammering crypto per se, but more just speaking of where are the shortcomings, where can we do better, um, and, and what are the things that this just simply isn't designed to solve, and how could we move forward? And I think that's that's something that, uh, you know, we want, we're, we're more interested in to constantly move forward, move forward. To say that blockchain technology, to say that crypto and, 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 and all of this stuff is completely useless, um, is again swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction as well. It's the, these are the same sort of um, foundational arguments that uh, that we ideological arguments that we saw in, in the early days of the advent of the internet, um, and and simply because th- there were things that, that that hadn't been hadn't yet been invented yet that didn't allow the internet to scale in a way that we could have conceived today. So when you were working with like a fourteen point four k dollar modem, and you know when Sears very famously you know derided to say that this internet thing is nothing and it will go away. That was fair, a fair um, assessment given all the information at that point in time. There was no broadband. There was no way to use your credit card securely on the internet. You know, a lot of the infrastructure had not been built yet. Similarly, what we're looking at is that with the current uh, infrastructure that, that is available to support the system, it doesn't scale. You, don't, you can't do high volumes. When you try to shift to different sort of um, you know, consensus mechanisms, there's the potential that now it looks start, starts to look more like a security as opposed to, you know, there's a whole bunch, uh, a whole whole bunch of arguments. So so I, I I think we don't necessarily look at things like, oh, you know, we we we're keen on this project or we're not keen on this project. I think we're keen on the advancement of the industry as a whole to to develop um, you know legitimate use cases and I'll, I'll, since we've been talking about stable coins quite a bit let's just go back to one simple use case um you may agree with it you may not agree with it but we know it's a use case that there are people in countries with um capital controls in emerging markets who would not otherwise have been able to receive an income in dollars or have had access to some kind of quasi dollar uh, bank account who have been able to sort of make a living um, you know, receiving payments for their digital services that they've rendered, be it website design, just graphic design, any kind of, you know, work that can be delivered in a digital uh, medium. And they've been able to sort of make a living and uh, provide for their families such as it is, you know, um, using stable coins and stuff like that. And they've managed to find off-ramps in their jurisdictions. Um, whether you agree with that vehicle or not, in the sense that it, it evades capital controls, um, there is some issues as well, of course, with the collection of taxes, I'm not here to make a, a... It's a use case though, right? Those are use but cases. But it is a use case. And, 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 and that's what I want to point out. It's not like this whole thing has just been one ridiculous, you know, JPEG grifting, fraud bearing, you know, pump and dump kind of... Uh, it's, it, it, it's oftentimes, and, and it's not a popular view, but it's, it's very nuanced. It's not, it's not kind of dry, you know, it, it's easy to kind of just point the finger and say, all of this is garbage, we should just never have, and, and, you know, but we've seen that it can do some good. So I think, you know, in terms of um, what, what drives us, what drives us to continue to invest our time and, and our efforts and our energies at, in, into, this, into this ecosystem is that we would like to see things get better. I mean, there, there are potentials for efficiencies. Um, there are potentials for better settlements. There are potentials for, you know, increasing access to certain types of uh, assets, securities, 
uh, what have you. But I think these things take time. And, and the problem is that, of course, what we've seen over the last decade or so is that uh, because there was an opportunity to hype it up and not take the time to actually do the work and just, you know, make your bags and off you go, you know, water always finds mm -hmm. the, the easiest course. And, and that's what I think a lot of uh, people did for better. Well, it's not for better. So it's just for worse. But at the same time, if we didn't have that experience, you know, and, and we saw the same thing in the early days of the internet as well. You know, you just slap on a .com at the back of your name, mm -hmm. share price goes up. Mm -hmm. Now we saw that with Long Island blockchain, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we've seen, we've seen sort of the same acts going on again and again and again. Does this mean that it's doomed? No, it's not. Um, it just means that, you know, um, and the good thing is, is that a, a bit like the sand people, you know, the, 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 the scammers, they, they, they scare easily, they'll come back again in greater numbers, but eventually they'll go off because they'll, they'll go off, you know, to find some next, next grift. Maybe it's AI, I don't know. You know, maybe tomorrow will be something else. But those who stay for the long term, those who are committed to, to, to furthering the ecosystem, to actually finding um, a, a, a valuable use case. And, and to me, let's just, 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 just think about this for a minute. Right now, um, I don't know, I don't have the price chart in front of me, but a Bitcoin is alleged to cost 30,000 odd US dollars. Um, regardless of where you're getting your price feed from, just have a think about that from a global scale. The world hardly agrees on anything, you know, and that that we have somehow come to some sort of agreement that this is a non-zero value. That's surely worth something. I don't know what it's worth, but it must mean something. You know what I mean? Okay, so I guess I'll I'll take this three separate slices there from there. So I think. There are three things I find interesting here. One of them is the extent to which that sort of price supports an alternative way of organizing offshore finance that is plausibly less expensive and more efficient because you need to run these blockchains and then that kind of is enough to support most of the machinery. You don't need fancy offices in Antigua with a bunch of real estate and lots of this stuff that's in Switzerland and whatever. Singapore's got fancy private bank offices. A lot of these things can be run in a more automated software way. Um, I'll give some more specific examples for that one. I think there are people who are doing interesting AMM work, trying to mitigate some of the capital efficiency problems. One thing we didn't talk about, but it's a friend who's working on a project, uh, Cavalry, where instead of having two at a time, you can have three, four, five, six, 20, 30, 40 assets at a time. More concentrated liquidity doesn't solve the capital efficiency problem, but at least they're making a credible attempt to ameliorate the capital efficiency problem somewhat. That's good. That's better than just saying have a pool for each of these 50 different asset pairs. And then there are people who are trying to do real scalability solutions that will at least at least do better than the current things. I mean, what we've seen with attempts at doing roll-ups and L2s off of Ethereum is that none of this really works except in some sort of special corner cases, but it doesn't support the really hard, challenging stuff. I mean, Solana famously fell over every time there was a popular NFT mint. So it doesn't really work. No matter what your average case is, right? If you're still crashing once a month, you're not a proper blockchain. There are people who are trying to build sort of more hierarchical, multi-level, um, attached consensus domains. Um, the Alpha Bill stuff out of uh, Guard Time, actually an ex-colleague of mine who runs that, is an interesting example there. They're not so much crypto-y people as they are software engineers, mathematicians. Similarly, the, the cavalry folks, you're seeing people attempt to do stuff that's genuinely math clever as opposed to, look, over collateralized lending isn't particularly clever. This is something that finance could support forever and just doesn't because it doesn't make any sense economically, right? Eh. 
Um, whether the system can support enough of offshore finance to really pay its own costs and keep Bitcoin at a high enough price to have a large enough mining network to be plausibly decentralized is a market price question that we're going to find out the answer to as the retail users get offboarded when the system retreats to islands in the South Pacific whose name they can't pronounce. There you go, right? That's that's what's happening in the next six months. Um, we will see. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, right? Some of these are empirical questions. Right? Can is a clever enough AMM able to generate sufficient volume at tolerable fees? Oh, uh, I mean, all the LPs and Uniswap lose money, so that wasn't the answer. But maybe somebody will come up with something that gets closer to a stable equilibrium. It's a difficult one today, considering bonds paying what they're paying out. Um, I mean, that's that's effectively right now the competition. Uh, and no one's going to beat that right now. It's it's just too difficult. Well, I mean, the ETH staking yield thing is at least different and interesting. It's not some magical source of, of interest forever for people. I mean, that's just a ridiculous thing to believe. But it is you know, the idea that offshore finance doesn't need to consume as many dollars and that you can kind of fund the system writ broadly and collect some fraction of the amount of money that it charges in fees overall that's not crazy. It actually does sound a little bit like it's an equity security kind of an arrangement, setting legal questions to the side. The ability to say, I just want to invest in offshore finance in general and tie up a bunch of money supporting liquidity among whatever island nations that do this stuff. Yeah, okay, that's a totally valid investment, right? And it was completely unavailable to most of the world before because you couldn't buy shares in a bank in the Caribbean. And now you, in that sense, mechanically sort of can. That's a diversified source of yield, right? Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Um, whether it turns out to be legal is not my responsibility to decide. Do you guys think that the regulatory perspective is still going to be the most difficult challenge? Or is it actually establishing more economically sound models around the use of blockchains and assets that are sitting on these rails? Well, I... I I, I take it that when you talk about the, the regulatory actions, you're really talking about like this whole recent slew of, I think, SEC specifically, specifically against all these exchanges and stuff like that. Well, I mean, that really is just a function of the fact that, you know, this, they allowed, well, I'm not sure if allowed is the correct word, but they had not done anything for the longest time and allowed, I mean, just watched as, as these things unfurled. But, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, it's probably a duck. And if you look at all of these uh, cryptocurrencies, and I've written about this extensively, um, they, you know, they, they almost all satisfy the definition, the plain vanilla definition of the securities. And I see these long crypto Twitter tirades about how it doesn't satisfy this prong of the Howey test or it doesn't satisfy this prong of the Howey test and people are getting lost in the weeds when at the end of the day what was the whole purpose of the Howey test was number one investor protection that's it that's all you have to, to bear in mind you can just ignore all the prongs of the Howey test if you remember what was the public policy good that the Howey test was established to uh, achieve and that's investor protection now then the question has to be has this whole period of time when not classifying these tokens as securities been for uh, investor has has it been you know has it been accretive 
to investor protection or has it actually allowed a lot of people to suffer loss? And I, I mean, and, and not that it's, you know, not to be um, theatrical about this at all, but we've seen, uh, you know, with, with, um, with, with Terra, we've seen real world consequences where people have plowed their life savings into this thing, thinking that it is the future. They have suffered incredible amount of loss and there's little stories like that and some of them have actually gone on to you know sort of like take their own lives oh this is this is insane i mean you know um whatever your, your thoughts are on, on on people have should having to bear the consequences of believing in in, in this uh, magic internet money or, or what have you the fact of the matter is is that you know regulators everywhere not just necessarily in the u.s but everywhere have kind of dropped the ball in terms of you know achieving that investor protection and everybody's called this recent bout of regulatory action um, overreach well I, I don't necessarily agree with that I actually think it's not just is it's not just not overreach I think it's actually sort of making amends for allowing some of the most egregious frauds um, and 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 taking advantage of a whole bunch of feckless you know, investors um, to, to reach such a you know such a point and where we've got situations right where and I think this is likely to be, uh, you know, uh, of course it depends on when when this is broadcast, but I think this is likely to unfold, at least when we're recording this in the coming days, weeks, and months. Um, when you have provided a platform for um, terrorist organizations, sanctioned nations, um, and other forms of nefarious criminal activities, when you provide a platform for to allow such activities to be perpetrated, you can't then just go around and turn back and go like, hey, no, this is regulatory overreach. This is just yeah. software. I'm sorry, that that, yeah. <laughs> that argument has never flown. It's never going to fly. Um, it, regardless of which court you're, of law you're in, you know, no jurisdiction is going to go like, oh, yeah, you know, well, it's just a bunch of terrorists. It's fine. You know? and, I mean, one of the big issues here is that even if those activities are a fairly small fraction of what's going on, right, it's evident that they're a higher fraction of what's going on than in traditional finance. <laughs> Right. And the regulator in general is going to want to get stuff down to the level they were okay with before. So no one is saying 100% of this stuff is scams. We're just saying more of the tokens listed on your favorite centralized exchange have some scam-like characteristics than stocks listed on your local stock exchange. And they're going to want to get that sorted. Um, it seems like the disclosure-based regime achieved a lot of that. And so an attempt to hammer through something that looks a bit like that feels pretty likely. Right. Has the government been as proactive, flexible, or reasonable as they could have been? Of course not. There's always stuff is not done perfectly. These are people, right? But, you know, a reasonable fraction of the system, it could be a, a single-digit percentage, has facilitated really bad payments, and so they take that stuff seriously and will come down hard on it. Does that have unintended consequences that damage people who don't think they did anything wrong? Yes. Welcome to the financial system, right? The 1MDB scandal increased compliance costs for everyone all over the world because of Overall, a reasonably small fraction of bad actors doing bad stuff. Terra Luna caused a tremendous amount of trouble, and it looks like that wasn't that many people, and yet everybody else suffers for it. Yes, okay, that's the reality of how this stuff works. Um, we'll see how much of an accommodation is reached and how much is left afterwards, but you know, the government in general does not like having to approve stuff and say it's good, because then if it happens to blow up, and some fraction of stuff always blows up. They get blamed for it. So governments tend not to give you certificates of okayness. They just sort of take your filings. And they want to be able to go after you afterwards if there was a problem, which is why this whole disclosure thing came in in the first place. So it would be easy to catch people and go after them if they defrauded folks. 
we can all agree that there's a reasonable amount of fraud in crypto and that people are more easily able to get away with it some of the time, not always. There are other ways in which the transparency makes it easier to catch them. So I think everybody's feeling their way through how to make that more reasonable. It's got different properties than traditional finance, some of which are better, some of which are worse, and having a parallel system that can compete on a reasonably fair ground seems like a net positive for everybody. It's not 100% bad stuff, right? And slowly the fraction that's good will presumably go up if for no other reason than the police get better at catching people the fifth time they've committed the same crime, right? And we know that. You can see this in equities where famously the SEC, if you buy a bunch of calls a day before a good earning announcement and the stock price goes up a huge amount, they will immediately, automatically email your broker and ask for your details, right? That problem, which was a horrific issue in the U.S., 70s, 80s, 90s, that problem is solved. That kind of insider trading does not happen anymore. There was a whole tech ring of people arrested, the Roger, Roger Rottenham stuff and whatnot 10, 15 years ago. That version of insider trading in U.S. tech equities is gone, right? They know how to, once, once they see the pattern, they're pretty good at building a surveillance framework and just chasing that thing. Because prosecutors love easy convictions, right? That's fine. We're going to start to see some of that. Right? There are clear patterns evident in the space, and the government is, whether you like it or not, going to go after those patterns, and they're going to make it easier and easier to automatically go after those patterns, and that will beat everybody over into a direction that's a bit better. This is the way it's a thrust and parry, blocking and tackling. Um, that's the way financial markets have been for thousands of years. It's not really a surprise. And I guess if you look at the flip side, right, if we were to say that, you know, regulation, regulatory actions, enforcement actions are a bad thing, right? Because this is just software. We're supposed to leave everybody alone. You're, you're, you're stifling innovation. So are we supposed to just sit by mm. and watch as this whole thing turns into a huge cesspool of criminal activity? Mm. I mean, that's actually going to scare people away and mm. nobody's going to want to participate. Mm. It's going to shrink the, the economic potential of this potentially transformative technology and it would just destroy the very thing that you, you know, you, you're looking to build. So I, I would say that, you know, you have to look at this as just necessarily part of the whole growing process. It is part of the growing pains. Um, regulators are going to get it wrong, as they will all the time. And and, and the, the market's going to get it wrong. The industry's going to get it wrong. And we're all going to make mistakes. But to say that, you know, there should be no enforcement, that there should be no regulation, then... You know, have you watched the, the movie The Endless Purge? I mean, telling the judge you have no control over me never ends well. <laughs> it so, just doesn't, right? You're not going to... I mean, I would, I would say that regulators should embrace sort of the blockchain because there are firms like yours that can actually aid them in the pursuit of criminal activity. Uh, the, 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 current, the current system... Yeah, the current system doesn't work either, to be honest with you. I mean, we're talking about a a recovery rate of criminal activities in the traditional finance sector and the banking sector of 0.01% of criminal funds. Whereas we had a hack on Bitfin the Bitfinex hack. They found the two people. There was $4 billion recovered. That's probably more money than they recovered in the whole banking industry in the whole world that year. So there's, there's something there for them to use. There are different properties here. I mean, certainly the, the public traceability makes certain things easier. The lack of registrations and disclosures often makes it harder to figure out who's involved, right? So if you look at the way these foundation structures work in the U.S., the whole idea is to say, here's a whole bunch of people who are running this. If you just slap the securities registration on that, you would then be able to police anything and know who to go after, right? 
websites. And you can see how that might map over. Yes, it's much easier to catch people when you can see all the records. We have people using our tools to dig around the Celsius bankruptcy, finding interesting stuff and where money went and whatnot. Yeah, in traditional finance, that's impossible. You can't just pull all the banking records. Even the government can't really pull all the banking records because they're all totally incompatible. So yes, there is definitely stuff that makes some of that easier. Probably we need more than the zero paperwork being filed with the government on the side to really fully leverage that. But yeah, it has different properties and you know, the hope is that you end up with a complementary system that's kind of better overall. The, the risk is that you end up with a complementary system where people are just exploiting the weaknesses in the traditional offshore system over there and the weaknesses in this system over here. And that's really not going to help anybody because then it's just going to get whacked and shut down. We need to find a way to constructively engage with the people who make the rules to try to end up in, in the positive the positive version of that. I, I agree. I agree. I, and on that note, I think, gentlemen... The hope for an integrated financial system rather than a competing one is probably the best way forward for our industry. No, I, I think that's totally fair. Some kind of integration that's still a little bit unclear, but getting there. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really interesting conversation, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed this too. Thank you very much, Freddie. Thank you. Thank it's you. been a privilege and a pleasure. As always, we appreciate you tuning into Coppercast. Follow me for regular updates on cryptocurrency macro research, digital assets, and distributed financial market infrastructure. My handle is at Fadi Abuelfa. Thank you to my producer, Kate Light, for continued support. And if you would want to get in touch, email us at marketing at copper.co or find us on Twitter at CopperHQ. This podcast has been prepared for informational purposes only without regard to any individual investment objectives financial situation or means, and Copper is not soliciting any action based upon it. This podcast is not to be construed as a recommendation or an offer to buy or sell any security, financial product, instrument, or to participate in any particular trading strategy. Certain transactions, including those in digital assets, give rise to substantial risk and are not suitable for all investors. The value of digital assets may go down, and your capital and assets may be at risk.